was in an AA meeting uh, when I moved out there, and I had seen him before, and I turned and uh, pretty much just asked him to be my sponsor. He said, what's going on? I started crying, which is nothing new for me if you know me. <laughs> but um, I can tell you this, that uh, Larry is, uh, showed me some things uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, I don't hardly ever see anymore, and that was uh, opening his home to me and to other people, and he's a solid member of AA. And I enjoy listening to his story. And would you please help me welcome Larry T. Good morning, everybody. My name is Larry T. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I'd like to thank you guys for inviting uh, me to be out here. And uh, there was a mistake on the program, however. Uh, on the program, you've got me listed as uh, Larry Thomas. And uh, what I've learned since I've been out here is that I'm Rosie's husband. Uh, ever since we got off the plane and uh, and she talked Wednesday night, uh, I have become Rosie's husband. And uh, and uh, I come to a meeting uh, the other night. We were you know over here at the convention, and I'm finally you know I'm, I'm sitting up front here with Rosie, you know, and. I see six or seven people come in, and I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, now I'll hear some people that'll notice me, you know. <laughs> Every one of them just pushed me right out of the way, you know. I said, hi, Rosie, I loved your pitch Wednesday night, you know. I, so, uh, um, you have humbled me deeply. I, uh, <laughs> I, I tell you what, ever since, uh, and ever since we got off the plane, uh, Wednesday, I have been embraced by Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't get that everywhere I go. I rarely get it in my own group. <laughs> you know, some people say that it's the electricity of AA and our group is friction. <laughs> you, know? you guys to the untrained eye look like y'all get along. <laughs> uh, but I know, it's that damn Cassini. <laughs> <laughs> we uh we we've got a nickname for him now. It's called Donation Don. <laughs> I uh I tell you what though, um uh like I said, as soon as we got off the plane, man, we have been uh we have been in your hands. And I tell you, I have never felt more comfortable. I feel like I'm coming back home to tell you where I've been. You know. Because I come to your meetings and I hear your Alcoholics Anonymous and I feel your spirit. And, you know, uh, that's where I live. See, that's the only comfortable place for a guy like me to live, you know. And, uh, you know, seeing John here, uh, I, you guys shipped him off to me. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I, ha I had to send him back to Bob saying, send back when complete. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and... Uh, so, I guess we're going to be playing tennis with John for a while here, you know, it's just volley for serve, you know, it's like, kind of like hot potato in AA, you know, I don't want the son of a bitch, you know. <laughs> um, but when, <laughs> but when, uh, but when John came out to, to visit or whatever the hell he was doing out there, you know, he came out, uh, one of the first things he did is he told me about this hideous dream that he had. And, he, and you know, and being a sponsor, you always got to be here for that nonsense, you know. And 
and he said, I had this, I had this scary dream. He says, I dreamed that I was in hell. And, uh, and he said, uh, Satan came over to me and, and he said, why the long face? And John says, well, I'm in hell. And he says, well, for Christ's sakes, John, haven't you ever drank before? And John goes, yeah. Satan goes, well, you're going to love Mondays down here. Hell, we've got gin, we've got vodka, we've got rum, we've got whiskey, and you don't have to worry about being, getting cirrhosis. Hell, you're dead. He says, did you ever do any dope before? And John goes, a little. And he says, well, that's the kind of line that got you down here. He says, you're going to love it on Tuesdays. We've got heroin, we've got speed, we've got crack, we've got hash, and you don't have to worry about overdosing. Hell, you're dead. He says, do you like to gamble? And John goes, a little. And he says, well, you're going to love Wednesdays. We've got the ponies, we've got poker, we've got slot machines. You don't have to worry about going broke. Hell, you're dead. He'd love the ring of that, you know. He says, do you like to smoke? And he goes, yeah. He says, well, you're going to love Thursday. We've got camels. We've got cools. We've got Cuban cigars. You don't have to worry about getting cancer. Hell, you're dead. He says, are you gay? And he goes, no. And he says, well, you're going to hate Fridays. (laughs) (laughs) Then I sent him back here. Um... Went to uh, uh, went to a beautiful thing. Uh, one of my dreams when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, which was kind of a neat thing for a guy to start having dreams again <laughs> instead of nightmares. I said, uh, I want to go to Doctor Bob's house. I've got to find out where this thing started, you know. And uh, I was told it's kind of like Bethlehem. Something really neat happened there once, but nothing much has happened there since, <laughs> uh, you know. And uh, and I had to go back there, and I didn't know how we were going to do it. And this weekend opened up, and uh, a beautiful little guy in the Cadillac, a little little guy by the name of Don Cassini, met us there, stopped what he was doing, and he took us to the whole route from the Mayflower Hotel. We looked at the phone. We were in the bar. We seen the distance what the guy had to do. You know, there was a lot of room for Bill to wander. Don't, and an Alki don't need, I wander in my car for Christ's sake, you know. And, uh, and we seen the directory and we seen all the numbers and everything like that. And, and, uh, we went down to the Cyberling Gatehouse, you know, seen how long it took that guy to walk there. And we wound up in Bob's house and, uh, and, and we were all sitting around having coffee and me and Don. And what a, you know, uh, how did that thing get from Cleveland to L.A. to around the world and all these different nations is amazing to me. And the only thing that I could equate it to monumentally uh, was building the pyramids. How, these, how we look at them in our history books and we see these magnificent structures that took years to build but were built on the labors and the blood of the people. Somewhat the same shape as our triangle for the same reason, for the love of a sunlight of a spirit. You know? And you get people like me who come here and... uh, and you bicker about picking up a coffee cup or setting up a meeting. 
you know. And if it wasn't for the blood and the sweat of these people carrying up these limestones, building this pyramid of Alcoholics Anonymous for people like me and you who live miles away from one another can come and, and survive in the only environment created for us, had to be divinely inspired. Had to be. What a power we have here. What a power that is, you know. Because I'm a loser. I've always been a loser. And I've known I've been a loser. And I spent my whole life keeping myself a loser. <laughs> you know, don't threaten me, me, you know, 401k. I'm out of here, you know. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stay at that all-time low, you know. <laughs> and when you're a loser, I mean, my sponsor tells me that I'm living proof that a man can stay sober for 21 years and not amount to a goddamn thing. <laughs> yeah. He says, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about, you know. And... Uh, and uh, and being a loser, uh, when you're growing up, people are always bringing people to your side to compare you to, you know, and that's awful, you know. I mean, you got people, why don't you be like Barry and why don't you be like Johnny and stuff like that. And, and I remember being in high school, it's my freshman year, and I'm sitting in the principal's office for for being drunk. And my dad's in there, you know, and my dad looks up on the side of the principal's office and he sees a picture of a star quarterback. And he says, for Christ's sakes, why don't you try to be like Coy? And the next year I'm in the principal's office. Uh, I had got caught taking dope and being drunk, and I stole the janitor's cart, and I drove it through a library window. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm sitting in there with, uh, had to get that book back, you know. And uh, <laughs> I'm sitting there with my probation officer and my dad, you know. And, uh, and my probation officer says, you know, why don't you try to be like Coy? My junior year, my sister starts dating a guy, and she brings him over, and hell, it's old number seven right on my couch, you know, and my mom waddles over, and she says, you know, why don't you try to be like Coy, you know? My senior year, I'm in the Torrance Jail getting ready to do 90 days, and uh, I I look at my booking slip, and there's an old Daily Breeze newspaper in there, and it says, Coy makes all pro CIF, and I said, God, I'd like to be like Coy, you know, and uh, and lo and behold, I'm about five years sober in old A&A, and I'm... You know, and I'm sitting at a stoplight in my van. It's a hot August day, you know, and uh, and uh, in, in L.A. it's vogue that on every street corner there's a guy uh, selling oranges or peanuts, you know, or has this sign that says, I'll work for food, like you don't. <laughs> but, I had to be from Cleveland. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and people are always saving me. I always look like I need help or I need a pamphlet, you know, you know, and because uh, they're always stuffing them in my pockets, you know. And do you know that? Yeah, yeah, you know. And uh, and so I, I'm standing there in this van, and this guy has this sign, and he locks eyes with me. And I go, Shit, you know, I got two bucks, and he ain't getting it, you know, because I'm the cookie lady, you know. And uh, so he comes over to the van, and he sticks his head in my van, and he goes, Larry, Larry Thomas, and I go, Coy. My God, it, it was old Coy, the star quarterback. I thought this guy had it made. And I thought, man, if there was any justice in AA, that maybe my sponsor could maybe write him a letter saying, why can't you be like Larry? You know? <laughs> Always a loser. Always a loser. I, and uh, you know what? All week I've been bothering people because my dad's parents were born in Ohio. And uh, I had no idea about that. Uh, 
they were born in some city that nobody heard of. It's over there, I guess, by Columbus. It's called Winget Run. And I haven't found anybody that knows where that is, you know. <laughs> and uh, but there were there were a bunch of drunks, and uh, and uh, I was born in uh, I was born in uh, Pontiac, Michigan. Uh, I had a little Scandinavian mom, and uh, brought out to California when I was about four years old, and left a little foster home for a while. And uh, my mom was a uh, my mom loved diet pills, is what she loved. My mom was always buzzing around the house around midnight, you know, sorting out nuts and bolts all night, you know, or raking the neighbor's yard around midnight, you know. And she grabbed the edger one night and did the whole block, you know. She took off and, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, she she would chase cat fights. She would just, I'm out of here, you know, and uh, just a busy lady. And her favorite thing was to take that speed and make Afghans. And and everything in the house had a fresh afghan. You know, couches had afghans, chairs had afghans. My dad's golf clubs had little poodles she met. You know, and if there was any animals, they had a fresh vest on. You know, and uh, you know, you'd go into the bathroom and use the toilet paper, and there's that poodle hiding the toilet paper with the big eyes. You know, and uh, and uh, you take enough speed that poodle talks to you. You know, I know that for a fact. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, just everything, just clicking and clacking all night long, man. And uh, her favorite hobby was to eat that speed and make these big jigsaw puzzles, these forty million piece jigsaw puzzles of uh, of the Sahara Desert. And uh, that way, all the pieces looked the same, you know. And uh, she'd go to Savon to get it. She had one moo her entire life, and you could see right through that thing, you know, and keep her out of the window. And uh, and she'd go to uh, Savon to get her carton of Raleigh cigarettes because they had coupons on the back. And she used to save the coupons to buy more yarn. It was a hideous cycle she was caught up in, you know. <laughs> Come home, eat a couple more Dexies, plop down that card table, put, put together this puzzle, you know. And she had these big pair of toenail clippers because if she got a piece that didn't fit, well, she's going to snip that son of a bitch down, you know. <laughs> she's got a job to do, you know. And, you know. There would be nothing like coming home from school and seeing mom moving the refrigerator by herself, you know, because she's going to do some waxing, you know. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm a curious kid. I love taking stuff. I, I was a thief and a liar uh, before I could walk, uh, you know. I, I loved, my dad was a refinery worker. He'd come home from work and every Saturday have to give all the kids back their toys, you know. And, uh, and uh, I remember being a curious kid, seven, eight, going into the medicine chest. Taking one of those Dexies, you know, <laughs> trying to beat your eyes into the next day, you know, and uh, ran into the garage, closed the garage door, start putting together the PT-109, sniffing that glue, you know, looking out the window, seeing these black and white flashes, you know, that was the damn sun going up and down, you know. I, <laughs> my dad, my mom, I knew my mom loved me. I knew it. I'm in the middle of, uh, of two sisters, and uh, the, the younger one is getting all the attention because she's the baby. I've got an older one who's getting the rest of the attention because she's, uh, she's normal. She's happy-go-lucky. She's smart. She's sociable, uh, well-liked, well-adjusted. Makes a loser look bad having her around, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, uh, I'm in the middle there, you know, and, uh, and uh, my dad's a refinery worker. My dad's a happy drunk. Okay. The only thing that was confusing about my family was my mom was a was a uh, 
an uneducated lady, and my and she was full of religion. And my dad was uh, my dad had no religion and was a happy drunk. And says you're done. Honda Acura, black. Huh? Huh? Oh, okay. You're being towed away by an Al-Anon. All right. <laughs> so, uh, and my dad's a happy drunk. My dad's a happy singing the blues, Nat King Cole, Bobby Darren drunk, man. He loves to drink, man, and he, he loves to sneak in and out of his own home. It's an amazing thing, you know. Just see dad on the gas meter around three in the morning, you know. And, uh, I mean, he made drinking look good. He made sobriety seem miserable, and I didn't need any help there, you know. But he was a miserable man when he was sober, you know. And, uh, but he was a happy drunk, and, uh, you know, he'd sneak through my bedroom window, and being a refinery worker, you know, it'd be different hours of the week. One night he snuck in there, I felt that old greasy boot coming through the window, and I, I grabbed it. I said, hey, I said, you know, why don't you have mom make you a key, you know? Hell, she's up anyway, you know, I mean, uh, I can hear the Hoover going now, you know. I, and, uh, but my dad was a World War II vet, and my dad, uh, one of his favorite things is you don't know how good you got it back when I was your age. And I tell you, the man was right because he told me about the horrors of uh, pre-World War II. You know, he had a mom uh, who hung herself in a Detroit jail. She was a drunken whore. The old man choked on his tongue somewhere out here in Ohio, you know, uh, on his own vomit. Found him in a found him in a room over there. And he brought up his kid brother working side jobs, not going on welfare. See, that, that was a characteristic that my dad had that I don't see very much anymore. That when all else fails, go to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and when that fails, go to work somewhere else. You know what I mean? And my dad reeked of that, you know? And, uh, and he brought up his kid brother working little side jobs and gas stations and carrying groceries and stuff. And he had a dream, and that dream was to go to World War II marry my mom, and come to California and live that dream that they all were doing. And that was his dream, you know. And and I became the nightmare of that dream, you know. Uh, but my dad got one thing clear to me, that you're supposed to figure everything out yourself. You're a man. This is what men do. You have problems and you solve them, you know. Now, he never, I never verbally heard him say that. But when you're restless, irritable, and insecure, and afraid, you get so many neat messages. Anything but ask for the truth. Don't do that. Just live in your head. Live in your head. Run those sick problems by that sick mind expecting a good answer. You know what I mean? You know, and, uh, and my dad scared the hell out of me, and at the same time, I, I wanted to be so much like him. I wanted everything that guy had. And what do you do when you, I, I did with something that was to follow me to this day. I slipped right into anger and hostility. Screw it. I started building a brick wall between me and my dad that wouldn't start coming down till I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. It was much easier to do that than to find out the truth. And I'm 11 years old and everybody around me is playing baseball and I'm doing everything that everybody else around me is doing. 
but they seemed to grasp and develop a manner of living, and I missed it. And at 11 years old, there's four of us in a garage, and we start passing around a bottle of Four Rose whiskey. And for the first time in my life, life felt good. I didn't have to feel that grinding in my gut. I was, all my fears were taken away, and it felt good being Larry for the first time in my life. There was no doubt about what I was doing. I didn't have to fight to feel good. I didn't have to question me or you or anything else, man. I felt like any home run that anybody else had ever... This is what you feel like when you get an A. And for the first time in my life, being sober felt good. Being sober felt good. Because I'm always restless, irritable, and discontented, and I'm feeling weak. And when you're that young and you're feeling weak, I connoted that to being feminine. And it scared the hell out of me. I didn't want my dad to, to know that he had a sissy. And I'm having all these feelings, and I'm afraid, and, and I don't know what to do with that. You know, but I do like everybody else I know do, man. We just shot it down with four rolls whiskey, and for the first time in my life, it turned Howdy Doody into James Dean and two drinks, man. You know, and, you know, I didn't head out to Skid Row that next day, but I got the address, you know. Yeah, and I, you know, and, and I, and I, and I, God, I remember because I was with one of my buddies that took that drink with me, man. And there were four of us and we took that. And I remember laughing down to my toes, man, and, and throwing up and drinking more and stuff like that. And looking at Playboy and seeing boobs and laughing and, oh, you know, just loving it, man. And and from that point on, man, I just, I loved whiskey, tree forts, and dirty magazines, you know. <laughs> to this very day, you know. And, uh <laughs> Oh, I love it. And, I, and, you know, somewhere along the line, I had to go home that night. And my dad, you know, if you did something wrong, he gave you the wood. And I go, man, he's going to take the tree to you tonight, you know. And I come into that house and the old man just opened up my room and said, just lay down there and put a foot on the floor, you know. I put that foot on the floor and took off, you know. And I woke up that next morning and I knew I was going to get it, man. And there was silence in the house. Nobody was around. And the only thing that was different was my dad put a padlock on his bar this big. <laughs> you know, that's all that was said, man. And uh, and I knew from that point on that I'd be leaning on something for the rest of my life. I knew it then. I knew it. I knew I had found Everybody else was figuring out what they were going to do for the rest of their life. I just found out mine. And I knew I'd be leaning on this stuff for a long time. I knew it wouldn't be hard to get. I knew it'd either be the old man's Thunderbird wine or his Four Rose Whiskey. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And it was always with me. He never left home without it. Because there was a sense of ease and comfort and security that I never got out of anything being sober. In that book, Alcoholics Anonymous, in the doctor's opinion, there's that paragraph that they they write there that it says, when when they finally wrote that, it says, the only answer we have is entire abstinence. And that very next paragraph says, this starts a seething cauldron of debate. <laughs> you bet. Because we've been sober before, and that has never been an answer. I am here because sobriety drove me to drink. Time and time. Yeah, couldn't stand the way that I felt when I was sober, man. And I'm surrounded and I, by everybody telling me that I, and even my own feelings, that you got to get sober, you know. And I couldn't stand the way that I felt when I was sober, you know. And... uh uh, like I said, that was when I was 11 years old, and I, and I started, you know, taking the stuff with me, and uh, I finally got into high school, and I found a group of guys like me that drank like me, and, and, and you know, and uh, I started hanging around this little Mexican girlfriend, and I like cars, and she introduced me to her brothers, and they like cars, and, uh, 
you know, we started lowering our cars and getting up our hair real big, you know, and <laughs> listening to the Four Tops and the Temptations and the OJs and Marvin Gaye, and God, I loved it, man. I, I was in my plumbing truck the other day, and the Four Tops came on, I just started sinking in my damn car. I, I loved it, man, driving real low, you know, oh, shit, yeah, got the Four Tops here, boom, 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 all I could see is big hair and just a little bit of eyes, you know. I got a Mexican girlfriend named Loopy, her hair's real big, you know, and, we're bouncing around with these frowns on, drinking that gin, wondering what the hell you're looking at. What are you looking at, you know? Now I know, you know. I loved it, man. Everything I was going to find was going to be in that car, man. I loved it. I ran into a kid like that not too long ago, man. I was in the I was in the Glendale Mall over there, and this kid comes walking by me, you know, and he's about 18, got a bald head. He's all tatted down, got a tank top on, got a big pair of pants on that you can put about five kids in, you know. He's, He's got three beepers because he's an important kid, you know, and uh, he's got his mom's earrings on. He's got a nose ring hooked to his lip ring. His lip ring's got a chain to his wallet. He opened up his mouth. He, he's got a ball bearing in his mouth. I walk by him and he goes, what are you looking at? I don't have a damn clue what I'm looking at, you know. I wanted to spray him with some WD-40. I thought he was just, everything was hooked together, for, you know. And now I sponsor the kid, you know, and... Uh, what do you want me to do? I says, unlock yourself for Christ's sake, you know. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. Everything was pierced together, you know. And I, God, I love bouncing around in that car, man, and having those hydraulics, you know. Every now and then you get a hippie in the back seat and you bounce the hell out of him, you know. And I remember, I remember, God, uh, one of the initiations, well, it wasn't initiation, but you got to prove your stuff every now and then, and, and some guy stole some dope from one of us, and we were all going to ride off to get these guys, you know, and I'm in the back seat, you know, and I don't know about you, but all the good things in my life just clip on by. Slow things last forever, you know what I mean? It's like slow-mo, you know, and I'm sitting in the back of the Chevy, and we're bouncing out to Whittier, and we're going to go after this guy, because he's stole some stuff, you know, and, and we found him, and he's in the back of a, a hamburger stand, and we all, and I'm thinking these guys are going to help me, because we're drinking whiskey and getting all charged up, yeah, yeah, let's go get him, you know, and we pull up into the lot, you know, and there's this huge Samoan, the guy's like 6'9", 400 pounds, his feet are this thick, you know, you know, and I come running out of the car, and I'm thinking these guys are with me, you know, and I've got a pipe in a magazine. You know, and I think I'm going to nail this guy with a pipe. And I go, and it clicked into slow motion. I should have knew something was going to, you know. And I see this pipe fall out of this magazine, you know. Now, I'm going to go smack this son of a gun around with a Life magazine, you know. You know. And don't come back, you know. This guy kicked my ass for four days and five nights. And the only thing I could think of is when I'm gone and he's done, I'm going to kick his ass, you know. I didn't know about surrender, you know. But I loved it, man. I loved it. Everything I was going to need, I was going to find in that car, man. And um, around 1969, all my buddies are going places, you know. And some of them are going to Vietnam and some of them are turning hippie and going to San Francisco. And and uh, I wonder what I'm going to do with my life. So me and my buddy thought, well, let's go back out to Detroit and find your roots, you know. And uh, and I wound up in Phoenix, and uh, there, was, there was no roots there, just cactus, you know. And I, I'm over there off of North Central and and in uh, Roosevelt at the Apache Motel, looking down at the Wagon Wheel Bar and uh, drinking, dreaming, and dying. I got a $40 a month hotel and five floors, and we all share the restrooms, and uh, and we all wonder who died the night before, you know. And uh, 
I'm getting all these high-tech jobs at Volt and Manpower, you know, and uh, I get this one job and uh, I fake a knee injury, go to the doctors, you know, and uh, and I meet this guy out there, Ernie, and Ernie's from Tennessee, and I, it's funny how you meet these people. For me, it's just a matter of two boilermakers, you know, and, and you start sounding like who's ever next to you. It's an amazing thing that I have. It's, it's I don't care if you're from Baghdad, you know. After two drinks, I start sounding like you, so you'll understand me. You know what I mean? I mean, I do that today. I'll talk to a gardener, you know. You would just say, yeah, Andale, you know, and I think he understands me, you know. And uh, and so I have a couple boiler makers, and I start, hey, Larry, how are you? Well, hi, Ernie, how are you? You know, like we're old buddies, you know. Well, I know how we're going to make some money, and me and Ernie, you know, and he says, I know how we're going to make some money. He says, not too far from here is a horse track. He says, I think we're going to get you down to 95 pounds, and you're going to be a jockey. You know, <laughs> really, man. So, you know, and Ernie says, what I want you to do, he says, uh, in about two months, I want you to take this stuff. And he gave me a bag of, of speed. And he says, I'll be back in two months, and we'll go get your colors and stuff like that. <laughs> and he left the hotel, you know. And one week later, he came back, and I'm in the same spot. I'm, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be a jockey, Ernie. I'm going faster than any damn horse I've ever seen in my life, you know. <laughs> Jesus Christ, he couldn't have possibly taken all that, you know. So anyway, I, uh, I, I fake a knee injury, uh, at this, at this plumber's and, uh, and we get some prescriptions and we meet some guys in Tucson. Long story short, we start selling social security card writing prescriptions for second all and two and all and obitrol and you name it all. We wrote it all, you know. And, and uh, and, uh, you know, and after about a year and a half, they caught up with me. What, you know, you know, there's no freeway chase. <laughs> it's just a matter, yeah, when you're on whiskey and barbiturates, they're not, oh, there he goes down the 605. Uh, none of that is happening, you know. It's just a matter of the sheriff coming into your little busy bee hotel, you know. And oh, there he is under there, you know. And always butt naked, you know. Leave it to that alky, man. Always butt naked. They always find, yep, he's over there in the boiler room, butt naked, you know. What is that about, you know? Answer the door, butt naked, you know. I, I was at a conference a couple years ago in Bakersfield, and we had to share the hotel convention with a, a convention for the Jehovah Witnesses. And about three o'clock in the morning, I had this tremendous urge to grab a grapevine and go door to door. You know Bill and Bob love you, you know. <laughs> Just to see how many of them would answer the door butt naked, you know. Get out of here with that ship, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's how I. That's how I think. Anyway. Uh, so they uh, they uh, try me and convict me, and I'm down in Arizona for about a year, and I, I and. and uh, in 1974, they come there with a $45 voucher and give me a bus ticket on the Continental Trailways back to L.A. And I go down to the city hall and I sign up down there and I get a little room down there. And, and then I live the life of a loser where you sit around and whine about the state of your life, but you refuse to do anything about it. You know, you just keep yourself in that hamster cage that the losers learn to furnish. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're not going to do nothing about it, but we're going to stay down here and shake our fists at the world for our state of affairs, you know. You see, I'm a something-for-nothing guy. And that's what alcohol did for me. 
It gave me something for nothing. And it made a loser feel like a winner for a half hour. And all my life I've been a something for nothing guy. Give me that bottle, I'll pay you later. Give me that stuff, I'll pay you later. Give me how you feel and I'll work these steps later. See, that's how people who feel special operate. Special losers operate like that. All my life, I've had to be treated special because I'm such a loser that if you treat me average, I think you don't like me. You see? I'm the type of guy who has spent a lifetime doing average things expecting standing ovations. Yeah, I take out the trash and I think my dad's going, Jesus. You know, my God. I do eight hours of work and I think my boss is in the office going, Jesus Christ, man. The guy only took a half hour lunch too. Man, they don't make them like that anymore. Whoa, man, you know. I put on a toilet seat for Rosie. For four months I'm waiting for her to say something. Every night she come home from that meeting. She'd go into the bathroom and I'm going, come on, man. Get out of yourself, you know. Jesus, how selfish can you be, you know? That's a new, that's a new maple you're sitting on in there, you know? Always having to get recognition for doing what you're supposed to be doing anyway, you know? That's why people aren't impressed sometimes with us. That's why I don't bother telling everybody, I mean, you know, yeah, I haven't drank for, you know, a big deal. Me neither, you son of a bitch, you know? You still stole from me, you know? My mom ain't impressed, you know? She hadn't drank either, you know? But I tell you, I come back to California and, and I started living that, that life that we live where there's uh, just no hope and you're, you're right there and you're, and you're drinking and you're dreaming and you're dying. And sobriety is frightening. And now every now and then you come to the time in your life where getting sober sounds like a good idea. This is a baffling feature about my disease that as I know nothing about a phenomenon of craving. You see, I've spent a lifetime talking myself into that first drink. And after that, it's up for grabs. You see, I'm an alcoholic. I still suffer alcoholism, which strikes me when I'm sober. My head's got teeth on it. And if I'm not feeding it AA, it's going to chew me up alive. You see, and that's alcoholic insanity for me, is to sit in these rooms, concede to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic, and think that I could stay sober without Alcoholics Anonymous. That's total insanity that's being practiced on a daily basis with people three people down from you. You see, the obsession to drink will never come as a form of a drink. The obsession to drink will come as a form of, I don't need to do this anymore. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I don't need to go to that meeting. i got to get work boots. <laughs> How quickly our priorities change when the wrinkles out of our bellies go away, you know? And I didn't know that. I didn't know it, and I'm baffled about this thing. And that's the thing that I identified with Bill Wilson so much, was that, not that he was a stockbroker, not that anything else, or the way he, is that no matter what he did, no matter how low he got, it was never enough to keep him in check. He never hit a bottom. He was like me. I would hit a bottom and set up home, you know, and boom. You know, I, it didn't catapult me into anything. You see, I'm an alcoholic. And, and long after it stopped working, I got a mind that says, this time it's going to be different, pal. And it only comes to me when I'm sober. 
you know, and no matter what the consequences, no matter who's you're pleading to, no matter the loved ones that you're going to hurt, honey, I swear, even the prayers, even when we finally get, dear God, help me, even when we're on that gurney in the detox and we've got hoses coming up and we're laying there with all the bags and the hoses and stitches and I'm thinking, boy, when I get out of here, I'm going to Eddie's liquor store. That's all I can think about is getting up off this gurney and going to Eddie's liquor store. See, the memory of my last drunk isn't why I'm here. The memory of my last drunk is not what keeps me sober. The memory of my last drunk is what made me do the uncomfortable to get comfortable. It made me do things I knew wouldn't work for me. But it didn't happen for a long time. Because I'm thinking that I'm going to learn my lesson. Boy, Jesus, man, I'm never going to do that again. And after three weeks, maybe months, maybe days, maybe years, my mind starts thinking like the normal guy. And how does that normal guy think? Boy, it's hot out. I need a drink. He thinks he can have a drink and so do I. Because I'm an alcoholic and that's all I think about when I'm sober. My mind is designed to get me drunk and it sets me up like a chess player, man. And it's just always moving me around. I watched these guys last night at the dance. They had the Celtic bar right over here, you know. There was 12 Alkies foaming at the mouth. Just looking at that bartender, man, you know. And, you know, my mind don't care that I'm in AA. My mind's always had power over me and I've always given into it because I am powerless, you know. And if I'm not doing certain things, I'm destined to return. I'll never be so sober that I can't get drunk again. But I can get so drunk that I can't make it back. And I've had to resign to myself that this was the answer. And I didn't know that. I didn't know nothing about a phenomenon of craving. I had no idea, you know. And in uh, uh, 1974, I'm in, a, I'm in a little league dugout, and I'm trying these little attempts to get sober on my own. I don't know about AA or nothing like that. My probation officer has given me this stuff called <coughs> anabuse. You know, and I'm trying to control my drinking around that and wondering why I'm looking like a watermelon on the inside, you know. I'm just beaming red, my heart's, you know, and I'm trying to sneak drinking on anabuse, you know. And, uh, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and in 1974, I'm two months sober and I'm in a little league dugout. And I'm in between being hysterical and maniacal and I'm stone cold sober. I'm gone. And I'm frightened and I think I'm out the other end. And I start crying and I don't know what to do with myself. And they call the police and they call the Harbor General Hospital. And I go to the hospital and they diagnose that some of my overdoses have been suicide attempts. And that maybe I need to go to a state hospital for 30 days to be observed. And 11 months later, they take me out of there. Totally observed. And uh, they gave me my, yeah, they gave me my anti and they gave me my anti-anxiety pills and my antidepressants, and they told me that I wouldn't be able to survive out here unless I took them. And they were right, because I lasted two months and I ran out of Thorazine. And I was, uh, yeah, remember that? And uh, and I was and I was on Olvero Street, and they picked me up for being a public nuisance, a public drunk. No big convict here, no big hotshot here. I'm people you, I'm the kind of guy you step over. You see? And they rolled me up and they send me up to the uh, wayside and I'm up there 30 days and they put a bunch of us in a black and white bus and they send us down to Torrance Courthouse where we're going to be sentenced off to our institution. And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm in a holding tank. Half the size of this and there's just me and bologna sandwiches. 
and I'm sitting on a concrete floor and I got my Vons bag and no hope. And way down the hall I hear the keys. I hear the jailer's keys and I can pick that up. I can pick that up a day away. And I hear him shuffling down there and I'm going, man, I'm getting cut loose. And they opened up the jail cell and there's a Scottish man with a patch. And he says, I, he says, uh, are you Larry Thomas? And I go, yes, sir, I am. He says, son, my name is Alex and I'm with Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, come with me, you're going to AA. AA? Those are two initials I've never heard of before. I've heard of OR and PO, but what's an AA, you know? And who's this Scottish man with a patch all of a sudden, you know? I lad, you know? So I'm ready for a long ride and some lunch, and, uh, and this guy takes me for a 15-minute car ride in his lime green Plymouth. And uh, he was your biggest cheerleader. This guy was so happy that he was going to take me to you. He was so happy about the fact that he was going to bring me to you. And you know, for 15 minutes, that guy could have killed me. And he could have killed me like I see him killing him today. He could have lowered his car and put on the four tops and start talking that street nonsense to make me feel a part of AA. But you see, he was a man of character. He was a man of principle. And he was a man of Alcoholics Anonymous dignity. And he made it very clear that if there was any changing to be done in that car, it wasn't going to be him. But he told me something that I'd never forgotten. And if you're new... We know you feel different. One of the earmarks of the alcoholic is that no matter who's in front of him, what group it is, even AA, he always feels different. And he told me the most miraculous thing, and this is what I'd like to share with you, that if you're new and you're feeling different, I'd like to let you know that the more different you feel, the more qualified you are. Then nobody comes here happy and well-adjusted. That's just what the Al-Anons feel when they see you leave, you know? That's something that happens after we get here, you know. And he took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1975. It was a little club over there in Torrance called the TLC Club. He rode me up this little dingy club, and there was a bunch of gypsies outside, man, you know. And they all had their vans and their motorcycles. And he introduced me to a little lady named Indian Genie and Captain Bob and Tennessee Bill and Singing Sam and Serenity Sam and Bicycle Ray and Santa Claus Ray and Dancing Pete and Whistling Butt and all these other people. I just... My God, everybody's got a nickname and a tattoo, you know, and I, I just left a group of people like this, you know, and little Moose was from Louisiana. She come running after me like a toilet paper commercial. Hi, honey, my name is Moose and I'm expecting a miracle. I said, I bet you are, Moose, you know, I said, I'm not it, you know, and then the big transvestite came out of the card room. He started circling me about four times, you know, and he finally landed, <laughs> you know, he said, you know, I can't wait to take you to a candlelight meeting. I said, I don't think so. <laughs> Not for my first year anyway, you know, <laughs> but that's a nice dress, you know, <laughs> what do you do, you know? So, uh, and my God, if that's AA, I'm not sure I want to stay here, you know. And if that's the effect of that blue book, I don't want to crack that thing open either, you know. And I was immediately out of there. And from 1975 to 1982, I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous on a regular basis. 
And that don't make me a better alky or a better member. Makes me nothing. Makes me what I am. Makes me a loser. Makes me a taker. It proved to me one thing. That if I don't change the way I live, if I don't change, my sobriety date will. <laughs> you know? And this is a program of change. Because I have found one thing true by hanging around with you and by living by your example. Is that I can't stay sober and live my old lifestyle. It's impossible for me to rip and run and stay sober and effective and happy, joyous and free in here with where I live. I didn't know that. And I came in and out of alcohol. And every time I called Alcoholics Anonymous, you people would come and you were always clean and you were sharp. One of my, one of the things that I hold dearest is the ability, by God's grace, to get cleaned up to come and see you. There is something happens when we start getting ready to see one another. How the dying start getting prepared to come to be with people they don't even like, <laughs> you know. And, and we and I just love that whole spirit of get. I mean, that starts me. Anybody can come to meetings in their plumbing clothes, you know. But when I when you when you stop and you take a little shave and, and you do a little something extra for the little thing that's saving your life, I love that. Something happens to me when I'm getting ready to see you. It's like getting, it's like getting set free. It's like them finally opening up the doors. You know? And I would come in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous and you'd always come and there was, and you guys were always clean and you were sharp, you know? And in 1980 there's this guy doing his 12 step work and every time I called Alcoholics Anonymous they'd come and get me. And they never said, well, aren't you the kid that robbed the Alano Club? You know? It was true, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but they always asked me one thing. You ready to go to a meeting? And in 1980, I'm up at the Don Hotel, and I'm, it's about 10 o'clock in the morning, I got a PM bourbon bottle cut in half, you know, and, uh, I got a hot plate and a hot TV, I'm watching Jeopardy so I can really feel like an idiot, you know, every now and then I get one right, you know, Donald Duck, yay, you know, I don't need no GED, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, I hear this, oh my god, it's the landlord, Larry, it's Don, Jesus, that guy from AA, I didn't even call him and he's coming over here, you know. Can I come in? And he opened up the door. He says, oh my God, Larry, you had 15 days. You were going to be a janitor in the city of Lamita. There's some hope for you. <laughs> you know, and, and he says, what's going on, kid? And I took a shot off of that bourbon bottle and I told that guy with all my drunken sincerity, I said, I don't want what you got. I don't want what you have, darn. And if I ever get that bad, I'll know what to do. Why don't you just get the hell out of my room and let me do what I want to do? The cry of this alcoholic for my entire life. Let me do what I want to do. That'll be a cold day in hell before another alcoholic tells me what to do with my life. It'll be a cold day in hell before I pick up a chair or clean an ashtray. It'll be a cold day in hell before I get another man a cup of coffee. It'll be a cold day in hell. I guess if there's anything I wish for a new person was a cold day in hell. I guess if there's anything I wish for a new person was that they begin to feel the feeling that Alcoholics Anonymous isn't a step down, but maybe a step up. You know? And the only the answer to life I've ever had, and the moment that I said that, that man struck a cord in the back of my neck, and it shot me back to 1967 when me and my dad are fighting. And he's kicking me out of the house at 15 because I'm selling dope at school. And he says, you want to live that way, get out there and do it yourself, kid. I got two daughters and a wife. And I ran after the old man, and I start slugging the old man, and I put myself at an all-time low. I put the lid on it there. 
I'm used to living there, but now I put the ceiling on. Because that was a feeling that I would never be able to drink away. Because even though I was full of fear and anger, I could see the hurt in this refinery worker's eye. Where he sees the only son that he ever had coming after him like a bat out of hell. Oh, how it crushed that man. Because he knew it wasn't had anything to do with how he brought up his kid. And he's sitting there looking at this Tasmanian devil going, what is going on here? It shot me back to 1972 when the macho man has no place to go. And where do macho men go when there's no place to go? They go to mom's house. And the man's out of the penitentiary, or not the penitentiary, the county jail. And his mom hasn't seen him for a while, and he breaks into his mom's house. And like the days of wine and roses, I start breaking my mom's medicine chest and her kitchen stuff and throwing stuff. And she comes down the hallway saying, honey, what's wrong? And I banged my mom around long enough to get blood out of her nose, demanding that she come up with a bottle that she had no idea. You see? My mom lays my head on her on her lap, and she starts rocking me. And I can feel my mom's tears hitting my cheek. And she's praying to this God she found in a convent in Detroit. Dear God, help my baby boy. And I'm thinking, Mom, it ain't that bad. It just ain't that bad. You see, it reminds me of sleeping in a park and coming in and out of AA and waking up and I'm in a park and I feel the rustle of about 12 little seven-year-old feet and I hear a teacher telling them, step over the sick man. And I'm in a park and the kids are walking over me. And I open up my eyes and I see these little kids looking at me, pointing and laughing, and I see every little beady eye. And I've got the ability to block it out that it's reality. This ain't happening. This ain't me. You see. And all the answers I've had left that room, that ball headed carpenter in nineteen eighty, and from nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty two, I'm stuck with the memory of you. And if you're new and you're coming in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, you may leave us, but we'll you know, we'll never leave you. <laughs> you know. You'll be in your room capping the ceiling. You'll think about that goof with the tie on in Cincinnati, you know. Good or bad, you're gonna think about somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous because a remarkable seed is planted and it's only planted in Alkies. It's only planted in Alkies. It only grows in Alkies, you know. And from 1980 to 1982, I'm destined to live on the street. And the only curse that I have is I keep coming to. Because I'm hoping this time it's going to be it. And on May 2nd, 1982, I go by a Woolworth window and I lock eyes with the thing. And the thing's 120 pounds and he's yellow. His eyes are cut. I got my shoes tied to my pants. I got my hair down to my back. I've got my Goodwill clothes on. And I'm ready to check into a mission. I look at this window and I say, my God, whatever happened to my dreams? All I ever wanted to be was a cameraman. How come I'm always getting drunk and I'm always getting sober? How come there's nothing going on in between? And I did what I always did when I got that way. I panhandled some money and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I get a hold of Alcoholics Anonymous. And who do I get? I get Don. Don, this is Larry. I've just checked into the mission down here. I'm ready to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Would you come and get me? And Don told me the most profound thing I've ever heard in my life. He said, no. He says, you know where we are. You know what we got. If you want to get sober, get your rusty rear down here yourself. I'm tired of chasing after you. He says, the sign says we care. He says, I'll be damned if I'm going to take care of you. And he hung up. I said, my God, whatever happened to that AA love? You know, and, and I took the long... I, I took the longest walk of my life, that 10 miles from that mission to that Alano club, and I 
waddled up to that little Alano club with my little poopy pants and no hope. And, I, and there were three guys out there and they asked me what I wanted because I was barred from the club. And I said, well, if it interests you, I'd like to talk to Don. And they said, well, there's a meeting in a half hour. And I waddled up to that guy and I asked that guy something I never asked a man in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Don, I don't know what to do with my life. Would you be my sponsor? And he lit up like a chandelier for about five seconds. And then he lit into me for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and he gave me the wood. And he told me, you make the effort, I make the effort. And for the first time in my life, and it wasn't my longest drunk, and it wasn't my worst drunk, but it was the drunk that drank away the debate of whether or not I was going to do these things or not. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to let this guy do whatever he wants with me. I'm going to give him a year. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just whatever this guy wants, he can have. I'll do whatever. He, I'll go to Cincinnati, whatever. I'm just going to let him have me. I've never done that. I, I've never given every anything a hundred percent. I don't have any, I have no confidence, I'm a loser, I spend half my life dreaming and half my life talking myself out of my dreams. And I'm staying in the same place. I've never given anything 100% except killing myself. And if I can put that same effort that I have into killing myself into letting this guy have me, maybe I won't have to stand here in torrents with poopy pants anymore, you know, trying to look good, but at least my hair was combed, you know. And, uh, and uh, I asked Don to be my sponsor and I followed that guy around and I loved that man to death and the deal that we had was that I'd have to walk to the mission to the morning meeting try to find a job and if I didn't find a job that I would stay down there and help them clean that club and at the end of the evening he would take me home and that was the deal and I had to get a social security card and I had to get a job he didn't want me to be a club loser he says, I don't want you staying down at that club praying for a job. I want you on the streets looking for a job. Okay? And uh, and the first thing he did is he got me into service. He got me into action. Got me into getting out of myself, man. And I love that man to death because he stuck me in the middle of you. My whole... And I used to come to Alcoholics Anonymous waiting, you know, waiting to get the answer. I have found everything I needed on the end of a mop. There's great power on the end of a mop. I never had to look for a higher power anymore. I held on to it. And I mopped with it. And I became part of a power. And I didn't even know it. I didn't have to wait for a power to come get me. And I started taking care of these rooms in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started sponsoring a guy. The first guy I sponsored was a blind guy. I tried to act tall around him, you know. It was great. I'd lower my voice and shit. He knew, you know. It was great. His dad was a transvestite, you know. It was great. I told him, you had a great looking dad, <laughs> you know. It was great. And after about a year, and, and, and I remember I remember having about 90 days, you know, and I'd see people come to the podium at this club, you know. 30 days ago, I was on the streets of Los Angeles. Now I'm the president of the Bank of America. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going... Jesus Christ, I came in with that guy, you know. And I was, you know, I'm comparing myself to everybody and I'm, Jesus, you know, and I'm whining to Don. Don drops me off at that mission and he says, Larry, he says, I want to tell you something, kid. He says, I know you're discouraged. He says, but I want to tell you something, Larry. He says, there's going to come a time in your sobriety if you stay around. 
He says it may be a year, it may be five years, it may be 15 or 20 years. You may injure yourself, you may lose all your dough. You may not have a penny left and a person to send you a penny postcard. He says, but you're going to have the knowledge. Not a tape, not a book, but you're going to have the knowledge that when all else fails, you can stay sober and live in a mission. You'll have that. Your primary purpose is to stay sober, kid. You stay sober and the rest of these things will take place. You don't take care of your sobriety. You don't have to worry about becoming nothing. And I could live with that guy. There's a great power in sponsor and sponsee. There is a power there that is unshakable. Where for the first time in your life, there's a belief there that we've never found anywhere else. I, there is that magic that happens to sponsor and baby that I love so much. That here these two hopeless individuals create this belief and this link and this power that is unshakable by anything that can happen to the human being. It can't be moved. And great events come when these two people get together. Something happens there. And something happened to me and that guy. And after a year and a half, I start backing away from my sponsor because I started judging him. I started judging him. I become bigger than my sponsor. My ego became bigger than my rooms of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I no longer was a member. Now I'm a legend. You know, I know where all the dances are. I know all, I know how to work an honest program dishonestly. You know, I know, I know how to put that AA face on half hour before meeting time and then half hour after meeting time you take it off and you go home and die because there's no change in your life because you're trying to stay sober on the junk food of AA and your mind and your body and your spirit are screaming for meat and potatoes. But you're destined to live on the junk food because we can't stand change. I don't want to become the hole in the donut. What'll happen if I let, if I do this and we start doing just enough to get by? By God, we never drank that way. How do we expect to stay sober that way? And at two years sober, I'm in a, I'm in a club and, a, and I become secretary of a meeting and I, somebody asked me to ask a guy to come down there and talk and I'm restless and I'm irritable. I've got the gun out and I'm contemplating suicide. I'm obsessed with sex more and, I, and just wild. I can't find relief anywhere. I can't stand the people in that room. I can't stand to get out of them. And a man come down to that room and he told me what I was. He says, you're an AA pimp. He says, there's a triangle in Alcoholics Anonymous, son, and I hope you find it. And I followed that guy, not because of who he is or what he is, but because he had something that I've wanted all my life, and that was belief in a something. And he believed in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't believe in nothing. I didn't believe in me or anything. And I followed that guy. And I followed that guy, and he introduced me to something that I ran into last Wednesday night in Cincinnati, and it's called a home group. I never had a home group. I don't stay long enough for people to get to know me. See, I'm, I'm an AA flake. Everybody knows me, but nobody knows me. They recognize me. It's like the kid on a milk carton, you know. And I follow that guy, and that guy's my sponsor. And he put me in the middle of a home group. And I'm a coffee pot cleaner. They could care less I'm in Cincinnati. 
they want their coffee pots cleaned on Monday night, you know. And that's my home group, and that's been my home group for 19 years. And I love my home group because that's my home. And when you have a home group and you have a home, you take care of your home. You do chores in your home. If Rosie and I were to invite you over my house, I wouldn't say, hey, before you leave, would you help me clean the bathroom? (laughs) People in their home group take care of their home group and they do chores in their home group. Why? To get wonderful? No, because we want to recreate an atmosphere that's never been created before. That's up to us to recreate. It's our job to keep our home group Alcoholics Anonymous. Not the board of directors, not GSO, not, it's people in that home group that is your job to make sure that that meeting is finer than it was when you got there. That they're here in pure Alcoholics Anonymous. And that they're receiving the gift that was given to you for fun and for free. And anybody can stay in their home group and against the wall with the guys that they sponsor, but are you getting out there and seeing a guy you never met before? Are you getting out of that circle and shaking hands with somebody you've never seen before? Are you doing the uncomfortable to get comfortable? Or are you just doing enough to get by? And he introduced me to a home group. And I love my home group. And every now and then when you're an older member of your home group, you have the privilege of looking around you and trying to talk people out of running away from home. You don't have to leave, kid. Why don't you go back to Cincinnati and get back with your home? Why don't you go back home with your family? Don't quit your job. You're having trouble at work? Go back Monday and work like it's the first day of your life. Work your ass off. I know you hate your boss. I know you hate that secretary and the guy on the loading dock. Go back there Monday and work like it's your first day at work. Work your ass off and pretend like you like it. Do that for 30 days and you won't have to quit. I'm a quitter. I'm a lever. I'm a flyer. I don't stay in relationships. If I'm complaining about no romance in my relationship, if I'm whining to my sponsor about Rosie this and Rosie that, and I'm not getting romance, my first check item is how romantic have you been? If I complain about dishes, my sponsor reminds me, hey, son of a bitch, you're used to eating out of a can. I sat there with my sponsors, the finest actor I've ever met. The day that I asked him to be my sponsor, he was happy, joyous, and free. And that next day, he was a son of a gun, man. Yeah. My sponsor's got a nickname. We call him son of a bitch, you know. And I remember being in that car with my sponsor, you know. And Johnny looked at me and he says, well, you've been around for a while, huh, kid? I says, yeah. He says, well, he says, uh, what kind of work do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a jack of all trades. And he says, oh, you can't hold a job, huh? <laughs> I said, yeah. And he says, well, he says, uh, what kind of relationship do you have? Well, I'm kind of a free spirit. You know, I don't, you know. He says, oh, you're a cheater. <laughs> I, I don't like the way this is going. <laughs> you know, and I said, well, I'm kind of a private person. He says, oh, you lie a lot. You're sneaky. <laughs> I said, this is going to be a long relationship here, you know. But I rode with that guy and I took that magical ride in that car or that magical two hours in a home where you sit with your sponsor. I'm resentful at. And you sit there and you tell them these secrets. And here's the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. They weren't shocked. 
I'm thinking, and I got this stuff in my head for so long that, man, I'm going to read this stuff, and hell, man, Johnny's going to tell me to get out of the car. You what? You shouldn't have any pets at all. You know? You know? You know? And by the time you're done with that fifth step, you're looking at your sponsor saying, get out of that damn car, Johnny. You shouldn't have any pets at all. You know? <laughs> and you get rid of the stuff. And that's the neat thing about being a sponsor. That's the neat thing about alcoholics talking to alcoholics is that we read these shocking secrets and nightmares and that guy on the other end of that table is going, son, perfectly normal for people like us. Yes. It happened to me too. He's not shocked at all. Not shocked at all. Because he understands. There's an understanding that an alcoholic gives an alcoholic that you can't find over a table with plaques. That you can't find by taking Prozac. That you can't find by any other way but one alcoholic talking to another, sober. Desperate with a fire under your ass. Because you want so hard to live sober and you want to live happy, joyous, and free. You see? And you take that fifth step with that sponsor and you make the transition for the first time in your life. Now you're going to step out and you're going to take those beautiful people off the hook. And you're going to bring that family into your life. And that mom that you used to bang around, you can put her head on your lap and you can rock her to Glenn Miller and she can feel the tears off of your head hitting her face. As you pray to this God and Alcoholic Anonymous to keep her in safe arms. She can come visit your beautiful wife in your beautiful home that you just have and bring you a little rubber plant because she's never been in a home of yours for 50 years. I never owned a home. I had never had an apartment. I never had nothing. My mom never visited me where I live. Anytime she would visit me, it would be looking through a hole. I've got some cigarettes for you, honey. I've never had a home. She comes and she visits me. She gives my baby Rosie a little plant. She sits in our backyard. All I ever wanted for him to be was happy. This is so beautiful. You guys have this little home. And my dad, my righteous enemy, what a privilege it is to be that man's son. Privilege. To know that everything that wanted that man wanted out of his son was eventually going to come to pass because another man in Alcoholics Anonymous was going to teach me about being a man so that my dad could be rest and assured that he's proud. He taught me the same qualities my dad had been trying to teach me all my life, except that when an alky talks, an alky listens. My sponsor didn't do anything fine and fancy. He didn't give me a magic word and a magic uh, list of things to do. He didn't send me away with a magic verbiage. What he did, is he gave me some direction and I took it. And I keep taking it. And I keep taking it. And I keep taking it. He gave me three meetings a week that are called no matter what meetings. No matter what meetings I call them. Consistency be my faith. Consistency be my route to my God. You see? Everything hinges on me and you being at the same place at the same day. Everything. You know? And making that amends to my father and me and my baby Rosie. The last two years of my dad's life, watching that 200-pound refinery worker whittle down to 90 pounds and taking him to the Dodger game and taking care of his checking account and bathing him and propping him up so they could clean him. 
being with him on his last day. What a great man he was. What a great man he was. And when I look at him and I say the prayers that we say all the time and we say our, our Father, I got such a beautiful picture when I say our Father. I got such a beautiful picture. I don't have to wonder. And I made these amends to my mom and this year it's the year of the sister. This year it's my sisters, man. I've been avoiding my sisters like the plague. I didn't know I was their hero. I just want to be their brother now. I just want to be their brother and know that they can call me. You know? And I met this beautiful lady, Rosie, when I was about seven years sober. I, I talked at a meeting in Downey. And she was winking at me. <laughs> and I couldn't keep my eyes off her. And at the end of the meeting, we held hands across the room and I, and I was talking with her. And she said, do you like the backpack? And I said, I love it. I never backpacked a day in my life. You know? <laughs> Anything to get in the tent, you know. <laughs> and we've been calling every, we've been calling each other every day since. My responsibility is to put a smile on her face. She's not my maid. I'm not her butler. I fell in love with you from the first day I seen you. And I just didn't know how to take care of you. And I didn't want to lose you. I didn't want to lose you. And so I started paying closer attention to the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous and how they were behaving and how they were treating their wives and stuff like that. And all they wanted was the best for one another. That's all they wanted. That's all they wanted, man. Everything I've ever needed was given to me by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a daughter I wasn't supposed to see from a first marriage, and I left her when she was two years old. I got a divorce. And at ten years sober, I got the biggest secret of my life. This fine example of Alcoholics Anonymous can't hold a job. I'm ten years sober. And my baby's hopping up in my arms and she's got holes in her socks and holes in her underwear and that's my fault. And she's looking at me with these big brown eyes and saying, Daddy, if you love me, why are you dressing me this way? And I can't answer that. But you see, the macho man's got a resentment. And the resentment is this. That first wife ain't getting a penny. And the way that she ain't going to get a penny is I'm going to stay poor at her for the rest of my life. And I stay poor at her and I don't succeed and I don't work overtime and I don't stay on a job and I get fired and I quit and I do everything I can to keep her from getting anything from me. And what happens is a two-year-old suffers. But I'm right. But I'm right. My sponsor told me we don't live about being right. We live by principle. And at 10 years sober, I finally have to go to my grand sponsor and I'm sitting in Clancy's office and I'm eating carrots with him. And I says, I don't know what to do, Clance. And Clance talked to me and he gave me a stack of papers. He says, take these to my secretary. I walked him to the secretary and I walked back and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous took place. For the first time in my life, somebody with authority told me to do something and I didn't ask why. And it dawned on me that if a guy asked me to go dig a ditch, maybe I should just go dig it. And maybe my little girl will have clean socks and nice underwear and nice shirts. And I'm happy to say that about a week ago, they gave me a little pen. And one of the biggest nationwide chemical companies thanked me for being their plumber. 
for 10 years of service. And for 10 years, I haven't hated my first wife. I haven't liked writing those checks. But I haven't hated my first wife. And when I go see my little girl, she she don't bounce up in my arms anymore. But when she says I love you, I can handle it. And I stay in contact with that little girl on a weekly basis. She's my baby Lauren. She's 15. She's probably getting a tattoo right now. You know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah, I. You know. Uh, she she called me. Uh, she called me the other day, a couple of years ago, and said the kids are making fun of her because she's so smart. She said, "Daddy, did that ever happen to you?" <laughs> like any good Alfie, I said, "Yeah." You know. I, I, I met I met her boyfriend. I met her boyfriend the uh, last time I was over there. He's uh, 16. His name is Josh. What kind of a name is Josh? You know, <laughs> Josh is not pierced, and uh, he's a big kid. And uh, I was having dinner with Josh and my daughter, and all the experience of the men of Alcoholics Anonymous came out at that table. And I told that man everything that you men have taught me. I sat down and I told that kid. Anything happens to that little girl is going to happen to you. <laughs> now go have a good night. You know, <clears throat> everything that I need to make me happy will be given to me by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Anything that hinders that happiness will be removed by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Somewhere along this little thing, we hear we are sober by the grace of God. The grace of God. What is grace? To me, it's been a compassion for the suffering. And if I don't show that grace back, I'm destined to return to where, so hence I came. I've always got to be available for the man who is out there, like you were available for me. It's been my great privilege to be here this weekend, to be among you. And it's no longer my meetings and your meetings, but it's our meetings, our common welfare, our primary purpose, our great privilege, our Father. Thank you. Thank you.